If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is not Arnold, but you should still listen to the 430 Movie podcast at 430movie.com. It's really fun. You'll like it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a Star Trek fan and you haven't already picked up the hardcover edition of the 50-Year Mission, it's time for you to go out and get the paperback version of the 50-Year Mission, which is just out in paperback from St. Martin's Press. This is the complete oral history of Star Trek, the first 25 years, from me and Ed Gross. And if you think you know everything there is to know about Star Trek, think again. The 50-Year Mission, out in paperback now. And if you can't read, the audiobook is still available. Hey, are you Darren Docterman from the 430 movie? Why, why, yes, I am. Well, I recognize you because I have the Electric Now app, and I get to see all these great Electric Surge podcasts on video for the first time ever. I'm delighted. I'm delighted that uh, you came up to me and said hello. Well, I got to tell you, how can I watch all these incredible podcasts like Inglorious Trexperts, The Best Movies Never Made, and uh, other things? Well, you can find us on uh, Distro and on uh, uh, the Electric Now app. And Stir. And Stir, see, I, stir I, I knew you knew it. I did know. Because I'm not really a stranger <laughs> on the street. I'm Mark A. Altman, your co-host. <laughs> well, maybe I should have been watching these podcasts all along. I would have recognized you. Join us on Electric Now, currently streaming on Distro TV and Stir, and coming soon to the Electric Now app. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And I'm really excited. We got some great guests today. Um, joining us again is the uh, writer of Thor and X-Men First Class. Uh, among other things, he was a uh, writer-producer on such shows as Black Sails and Lore. Uh, Ashley Edward Miller is back. Thank you for having me. And uh, very excited. Uh, he has a new book out in hardcover. It's also available in audiobook and, of course, digital. Um, he returns to a world that he has plowed in the past. Uh, it is, if there's something that's more popular than Star Trek, it might very well be the incredible world that Arthur Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle conjured up, uh, Sherlock Holmes and... Uh, this, our next guest has uh, explored this world in depth over the years. He's returned in his uh, best-selling new book, um, which, of course, is Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. And wait until you find out what those protocols are. It's Mr. Nicholas Meyer, writer, director, author. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you, of course, sort of... A, Beloved uh, wrote the screenplay based on your own novel for Seven um, Percent Solution, um, and it's been a long time since you've done a Sherlock Holmes uh, book. I think it was what eighty. It was eighty three when you did Canary Trainer, and now after all these years, ninety three. Ninety three. So you came Let's back. Let's not make this any worse than make <laughs> <laughs> you any older. Um, and here you are back. Uh, you know with. Uh, and I love the introduction to uh, Doctor Doctor based on Doctor Watson's 
files that were you're editing his, his well all four journals. of my Sherlock Holmes editing jobs I never take credit as the author I'm always the editor and this is the fourth one mm-hmm. what prompted you to go back after all this time and and write the novel was uh, was it what inspired you to once again, you know, go back? Because obviously, writing a novel is is quite time consuming. It's not uh, Donald Trump is the answer. <laughs> Donald Trump, and 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 uh, tell us, uh, is it the anti-Semitism in his administration? Is it uh, the the lack of intellectual rigor? Is it? Uh, I mean, I could go on, but uh, what what exactly about Donald Trump uh, inspired you to uh, put pen to paper, so to speak? One of the things that I've become interested in over the years is the subject of forgery. Um, This happened when I was a very young man and touring for my novel, The 7% Solution. I I landed in Pittsburgh after a big thunderstorm, and a reporter who met me, this was back when reporters would meet you, and uh, said, how does it feel to be a forger? And I was a little... stunned, but it hadn't occurred to me that, yes, yes, I am a forger. I forge these Dr. Watson manuscripts. I try to pass myself off as either Watson or Doyle, take take your pick, or possibly both. Um, and it's my little field of endeavor, and I'm good at it. Um, but as we have entered the past couple of years of fake news and all kinds of photoshopped hall of mirrors fakery where people keep pointing at each other and yelling, you're a fake, no, you're a fake, no, you're a fake. When you're interested in fake stuff, it's not very long before you come across the most notorious and vicious fake of all time, which is something called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. Vladimir Putin likes to quote the protocols uh, (laughs) if you needed the bad housekeeping seal of approval. (laughs) Anyway, these uh, protocols, for those of your listeners who may not be aware, uh, were whipped up in 1903 by these secret police of Tsar Nicholas II, the Okhrana, to justify pogroms Mm -hmm. uh, or Jewish massacres. Um, And uh, I've been actually thinking about this book for about 10 years before I wrote it. I'm a very slow thinker. (laughs) I'm a very slow reader. If I talk fast, you can be sure I'm playing a tape. (laughs) Uh, And I just, I was thinking about this stuff, and as we have witnessed this rising tide of right-wing drift and anti-Semitism um, and the peculiar antics of our fearless leader, I thought, yeah, it, if, you, if it takes a thief to catch a thief, maybe it should be a forger to go after a forgery. Mm-hmm. That's a long-winded answer. Sorry. Well, it's interesting. I like those. <laughs> you know, Madame de Stael wrote a letter to somebody, and she said, I'm sorry this was such a long letter. I didn't have time to make it shorter. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, and I, I love the way that um, uh, Holmes uh, basically dissects and, uh, you know, is able to, 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 to dismiss the protocols 
you know, in in, in a matter of, of moments. Uh, yeah, they're they're very crude. Forgery. They're also, by the way, uh, you've, since you've read the book, they're plagiarized. <laughs> they're not even original forgeries. <laughs> they're more bizarre than you can imagine. And uh, you know, anyone who's familiar with the protocols, it's it's readily apparent that these are uh, absurd. But uh, people put you know great stock in it, and it just shows the diminishment of intellectual rigor among many. Well, let's remember that Henry Ford the first Henry Ford, who had a, his own newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, which had the largest circulation of any newspaper in the country outside the New York Daily News, in the 1920s published the entire 300 interminable pages of the protocols as authentic. Hmm. He was subsequently sued for slander and libel by a California labor lawyer named Adam Sapiro, who won. He was forced to issue a retraction, an apology, and close his paper. But that didn't. That has not stopped them. They're, the protocols are a hit series on Egyptian television. They're taught as textbooks throughout the Middle East and Louisiana. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> they're around. But uh, you know, it's, you talk about the the cabal, and it's uh, it's. Um... Yes, speaking in French as opposed to uh, Yiddish or Hebrew. That's how they would or, plan the takeover. Or Russian. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. 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 The, why they're speaking in French is a good, terrific question. <laughs> um, look, you, you live, breathe, and eat Sherlock Holmes the way we do uh, Star Trek. What was the— There's and, a connection. You know, I, in Star Trek VI, I actually postulate that Spock is a descendant of Holmes. Mm-hmm. Are, are you right. aware this, of that moment in the movie? As one of my ancestors once yeah. noted. Yeah. Right. yeah. And and when you see Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, uh, in, and you screen it in theaters, and when Spock says this line, there's always a lot of yelping from a certain right. quarters, like three <laughs> right. people who go nuts in the back. <laughs> well, you're, you're not shy at paying homage to your influences, whether it's Shakespeare or Sherlock Holmes. Uh, All I've got are influences. There's nothing original here, folks. I... I, I <laughs> I must, I, I must admit, I, I did smile, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but again, not to give away too much about the book, but at the very beginning of, of the novel, and I won't call it a tome, but it's not quite a tome, it's, it's a novel, um, uh, Holmes is celebrating his birthday, and he's given War and Peace, which of course I found redolent of uh, Star Trek II when... Uh, oh, that's very, <laughs> that had not even occurred to me. <laughs> That, that, he should have been given a tale of two stories. <laughs> <laughs> Surely the best of times. But uh, I was. Uh, I, I, it was an. You know that was an accident. When I was talking to the producers of Star Trek Two, when I was sort of signing on for that cruise, and I had never seen a lot of Star Trek, so I didn't understand anything about it. And in fact, you could argue that the Wrath of Khan is a, a complete attempt to explain that world. To me, <laughs> that's right. Um, somewhat also from my father because I, I, the title in the twenty third century, I start because he sure. wouldn't know. He wouldn't know what he was watching. Um, and when I was asking them questions, and remember, this is like back in nineteen eighty something, whatever it was, uh, shortly after the Civil War. To the rest of you, uh, <laughs> I said, "Well, how come nobody ever reads a book?" 
not realizing that we were rapidly approaching the place where, where nobody, nobody reads a book. Right. book yes. you know? But I was sort of wandering around my living room while we were having this conversation, and I just yanked a book off the shelf, mm. and it was the one book that everybody knows the first and last lines of. Sure. So I thought, waste not, want not. It's funny, uh, I, for one of my uh, milestone birthdays, and I won't say which one it was, I had a, a, a nice uh, party, and I remember you actually gave me uh, a Tale of Two Cities, that a replica, uh, that very edition uh, for my birthday. So thank you for that. You're welcome. It's it wasn't a replica. It's, it's, it was it's actually, a terrific book. Yeah. It's a terrific book, and it's his only historical novel. Right. All other Dickens books are take place in the time in which they were written, whether it's David oh, Copperfield yeah. or Great Expectations. Mm -hmm. These are not period things. He went back to the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. And the question is, why? Why was that interesting to him? And I think it's interesting to him for much the same reasons that it probably is interesting now, is as the world is dividing between haves and have-nots, and people are increasingly living on the streets or in cars or in desperate circumstances while the 1% keeps... It, it's a replica that is very eerily reminiscent to me of what presaged the French Revolution. You wake up one day and there's no bread or there's no place to live. Teddy Roosevelt, who was a trust buster, and I wrote a whole script about Teddy Roosevelt, so I know a few things about him, was accused of being a, a class traitor, traitor to his own class by the Vanderbilts and so on. And he said, you guys don't understand. I'm the best friend big business has. I'm trying to keep you guys from getting strung up on lampposts mm -hmm. um, because things are very out of hand. This, this country is increasingly resembling the same reasons that Dickens mm. chose to write in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, people being thrown out of work or slaving away in factories and guys building bigger and bigger mansions. And I think he picked the French Revolution as a kind of cautionary tale. That's my theory, anyway. Do you find uh, do you do a lot of research when you're writing a novel? Or? I just make it up. <laughs> of course I do a lot of research. It, the research is different, you know. I love reference books. I got rooms full of reference right. I never look at them anymore. They're just like the emotional insulation of a house, books. Mm -hmm. The rest of the time, you go to Google University, yeah. and you nobody has to go to school anymore. You just look it up, whatever it is. The, the books are there for uh, set deck. And, uh, the I mean, I like them, and yeah. I like to take them out and sniff them. Uh, you know, because <laughs> right. it, it's very hard to <laughs> sniff on Google. And well, I want to, you know, I want to ask you because look, we've been down this road on Star Trek. You've you've told these stories; it bores you. We've heard these stories; they're wonderful stories. We all know it was his real chest. Let I want to talk about the things you're not normally asked. What I heard you say was Israel chest, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought this is how rumors get started. <laughs> It wasn't Israel's chest. Yeah, go on. Yeah, call so, me Israel. Yeah, a character name. I, 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 Israel's chest. Well, first, I went. You know, before we started the show, we were talking a little bit about the audiobook, and I think it's interesting. It's worth mentioning on air that uh, David Robb uh, did the um, narration. Um, David Robb is is the reader of the Adventure of the Peculiar Protocol. He, he is Watson. Makes a great holiday gift. I'll just say. <laughs> <laughs> how how um, 
And and you of course you'd worked with him on the Deceivers, and and you mentioned he brought something very unique to the role that you were looking for, but that you actually directed the audiobook sessions. When I was, when I realized there had to be an audio version of the book, and I'm fascinated by voices. I'm I'm Henry Higgins. I like to figure out where people come from, what their voice timbre is, just close my eyes and listen. Radio is really cool for that. How do people sound? And a lot of English people today have a different English accent. And this is one of the things that recordings do very well. If you listen to old recordings of American politicians or American actors and stuff, you listen to them from years. They don't talk the way we talk. It's a different sound. It's a different elocution. And I didn't want some Euro trash person narrating Dr. Watson. Watson is a 19th century middle-aged Englishman. I didn't want him sounding like Tony Blair. Mm -hmm. Um, So I gave a lot of thought to this. And David, who is not English, he's a Scot, and he would be the first to insist on that. But I met him when he co-starred for me with Pierce Brosnan in The Deceivers, Mm -hmm. which we made in India in 1987, I think. And he also was in I, Claudius, and he plays the doctor in Downton Abbey, or as I like to call it, Downtown Abbey. Uh, (laughs) It's a New Yorker in you. um, And I thought, that's the perfect voice. And I said to St. Martin's Press, my publisher, this is the guy we got to get. So they got him. And I went to New York and I sort of directed him. Not He didn't need a lot, I have to add. He's a smart cookie. Yeah. No, that's and, and that often doesn't happen. I mean, anybody who can tell you generally, uh, you're lucky if they tell you who they're looking at to read your book. In this case... My friend, Paul Hirsch, childhood friend, who was one of the great film editors mm-hmm. around? Just read his book, Rommel. Yeah, well, I'm in, <laughs> I'm all over the, the book. I'm listed in yep. the acknowledgments and whatever because I read it and helped him edit. So, but he complained to me bitterly that he had no say in who was reading his right. book. We have you know lunches every two weeks and quetch about stuff. <laughs> now I know we're here to plug your book, but I have to say I I loved. Paul's book, and there's some great stuff about Herbert Ross, uh, some great stories who, of course, you work so closely with on 7% Solution. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm amazed that De Palma was so charitable <laughs> with his quotes because, of course, he kind of gets raked over the coals a little bit. And I, I had a lot of respect for that. that, that... I'll tell you the story it has nothing to do with anything. A man named Peter Vertel, who was married to Deborah Carr was the last writer on the screenplay of The African Queen, and which, by the way, is the movie that I saved from Annihilation. It took me you six saved years. The African Queen from I Annihilation? Did, yeah. Okay, yes, we've got to hear that story, too. In any case, Peter wrote a novel called White Hunter Blackheart mm-hmm. about working on The African Queen, which he called Traitor Horn, and he changed the director's name from John Huston to John Wilson, and then when he was finished, and it's quite a portrait, he showed it to John Houston and said, John, if there's anything you don't like here, you know, just sing out and I'll take it out. And Houston apparently read the novel and said, kid, I know how to make me even worse. <laughs> and apparently later regretted this, but helped him 
uh, <laughs> helped him like make him into the monster that he apparently was. He happens to be my favorite American director, but <laughs> go figure, you know, great artists are not always great men and women. No, that's... Uh... We, I, we, 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 we've learned that uh, the hard way, sadly. Um, How did you save the African Queen? Well, many, many years ago, I wanted a DVD of the African Queen, and it was unavailable. It was the only movie on the AFI 100 list that was not available. I said, how, how can this be? So it began this six-year process. I went to Lynn O'Leary, who was then head of DVDs at Paramount, and I said, come on, help me on this. And I went to my friend, um, Eric Young, who works, he had a, a company called Spark Hill, and Eric restored 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, mm. and Eric did a lot of, and, and I met him because he interviewed me on the special segments of Star Trek VI, I think, is how we became friends. So it took three years to disentangle the legal mess in which Sam Spiegel had left this vis-a-vis wow. Romulus films, mm -hmm. and then another three years to actually restore the footage, which was controlled by Romulus films. They had financed it in London. And the Romulus brothers... Not those Romulus brothers, the other Romulus <laughs> brothers. They, they didn't have the, um, they were no longer alive. Right. And, and so it was, and remember that the African Queen was shot in, in Technicolor. Now Technicolor is a three strip mm -hmm. process, huge cameras. I think Godfather 1 is the last Technicolor movie made in the States and then they sold all the Technicolor equipment to China. So we had these like <laughs> scrunched up messy um, three strips and they, it had to be frame by frame three times right. for every frame, cleaned up, ironed out, and finally allied. And here's the funny thing, or at least my dad said you should never start by saying that it's funny. <laughs> here's what interests me. You, in the, in the old days of Technicolor, you could never get those three strips of film, red, blue, yellow, to line up 100%. Mm -hmm. There was always a kind of agreeable, Fringe. romantic fuzziness, yeah. which was great for musicals and things like mm. that. But now, thanks to digital, you can line them up 100%, mm -hmm. which turns out not always to be such a good thing. You don't really want to see when she's singing over the rainbow in sepia that Judy Garland has acne. Mm. Mm. You have to learn. It's not a simple oh. translation, whether it's from Spanish to English or digital to, you know, from technicolor. to. It, it's, it's an inexact. It's not a science. It's an art. And they, they didn't do a good job when they did that. Where it works great, it turns out, is if you are in Africa, you really went there. <laughs> and Bogart said to the uh, cameraman, Jack Cardiff, who also shot The Red Shoes, he said, you see this face? It's in our documentary that comes with it. It's taken me a long time to get this face. <laughs> I don't want you prettying me up. He actually said something else, but uh, we, we bleeped it out. Uh, so when you, when you get the Blu-ray version of The African Queen, there's this documentary that Eric and I co-wrote, co-directed, and I'm, I'm the host of it, mm -hmm. called Embracing Chaos. 
making the African Queen. And it's a lot of fun. It's because uh, we were just fascinated by Sam Spiegel. Sure. And John Houston, <laughs> kid, I know how to make me even worse. <laughs> and that's a gorgeous, gorgeous Blu-ray. I mean, I actually had the Laserdisc of African Queen, which was this great box set. Sure. Um, but it was not the restoration. And it never the restoration looked, is fantastic. The restoration if I, is if my mother says gorgeous. So herself, and uh, yes, yeah, so if you don't have the uh, the Blu-ray, it's a, it's you definitely should get. It's one of the great Paramount restorations. There's a lot of stuff in the library they haven't done right by. What, while we're is, on this track. I just want to mention that one of my favorite um, Laserdisc commentaries is you and Robert Wise talking about the day the earth stood still. He was a lovely man, Robert Wise. My problem was that I ran out of questions. Because the idea was we're going to watch the movie right. and then we'll talk. And so I you know, listed a whole bunch of things. And at the beginning, I had a lot of stuff. Sure. And the more the movie went along... There was like longer and longer stretches right. of silence, and you know. Then I go, well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so it's so sweet to listen to this, because you can hear your love for the movie and for him, and and it's just very human. Oh, that's and, very and, nice. and wonderful. I, I've never. I don't think I ever heard it. I just remember the day we mm -hmm. we did it and going, what do I say right. now? <laughs> that's why the very few great con like in principle, in theory. Audio commentary is great, right. but there are very few great audio I've, commentaries. I have never listened to one. You've I, recorded the idea a bunch. of trying to watch a movie while somebody is whispering some shit in your ear at the same time. It seems <laughs> so counterproductive. I mean, I'm glad I've been told that my commentaries on the Star Trek movies are, you know, that, that they're okay. Um, but I, I, my mind doesn't work that way. If I'm watching the movie, I'm watching the movie. And here's another question. These are just questions. Mm -hmm. But when you are experiencing a, let's what we'll call a work of art, mm -hmm. whether you're listening to Beethoven's Fifth or reading Charles Dickens or whatever, the idea of explication is something that I inherently distrust. I love the comment that Margot Fontaine made when somebody came up to her following the ballet and saying, oh, Dame Margot, I so enjoyed your dancing. Uh, tell me, what were you doing up there? And she had the presence of mind to say, I'm very sorry, but I explained what I was doing while I was doing it. Right. If you didn't understand me, then I failed. Mm -hmm. Look, artists lose all proprietary authority over their creations when they're finished, when they're out in the world. Artists are people who put messages in bottles. And once you've got the message in the bottle, you throw it out, and somebody's going to find it, maybe, and maybe they're going to open it, and maybe they're going to read the note that's stashed inside. But chances are you're not going to be standing over their shoulder while they're doing it and going, that's not gum, that's gun, <laughs> or, you've, or you've got it wrong. I remember listening to Billy Wilder at a Q&A &A and, and, and Grauman's Chinese when I first came to Hollywood, and it it was an embarrassing session because the questions were all so stupid. Mm -hmm. But somebody said to him, speaking of which, is one, two, three a political film? <laughs> <laughs> and first of all, putting aside the definition of what a political film is, not did you intend it to right, be, you know, right. which I suppose would be fair, but is it? So if he says, no, it isn't. And you, God forgive you, you know, had what Stalin would call political thoughts. 
that you were somehow that you were wrong that you were wrong that you you know and and so i i'm i'm suspicious of treating the artist as if he were the answers t- at the back of a book of math equations t- able to say yes no you're right you're wrong mm. it's just when people say why does khan wear only one glove <laughs> and i go why do you think he wears only right, one right. glove? I'm not going into those weeds because mm-hmm. even if I knew, which I, you know, I, I wouldn't tell you. It's about letting the audience contribute. It is right. about your imaginative participation. All great artistic media, with the possible exception of film, rely for their success on what they leave out. Mm-hmm. Paintings do not move. Music has no intellectual content. Words are just symbols on a page. In each case, it is the imaginative contribution of the reader, the viewer, the listener that completes it. The painting moves when it meets your eye. Beethoven becomes profound when it hits your ear. Otherwise, it's just cat gut and tubing. Mm And words make you laugh or cry when your brain decodes them. Radio is great because it's all about imagination. Movies alone, and I mean also television, has the hideous capacity to do everything for you. Mm-hmm. We call it eye candy. Candy's not good for you. And I think, as a, as a, speaking for myself as a director and for the best directors, the ones that I really worship, like Houston, is the things they manage to leave out the things they manage to leave to your imagination. Every time somebody points to something, you don't have to cut to what they're pointing to. Horror movies understood this a long time ago, where the person looks at something, something's coming at them, you don't see what it is, their eyes widen with terror. Maybe corny, but it works. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a, an artist's job is to figure out how you can leave things to the audience's imagination, because that's how you draw them in, mm-hmm. make them work. In Henry V, uh, the chorus says, on your imaginary forces work. Think when we speak of horses, that you see them planting their proud hoofs in the receiving earth, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I think it tends to be missing in a somewhat literal-minded you know, and it becomes you become very passive, and I start falling asleep in movies that don't give me anything to do, nothing to chew on. Mm. Well, I mean, then obviously it begs the question. Obviously, there was a lot of controversy recently. Or co- I shouldn't say controversy; it was a lot of discussion about uh, what Martin Scorsese and, and, and Coppola had to say about Marvel movies. Well, he said, if I remember the key sentence that, of what Marty said, was, "There's no sense of revelation." Right. Well, I think he has a point. I mean, I don't, I don't go to see those movies anymore. I don't go to see any movie that ends in the word man. <laughs> I, I think With it's the exception of Searching for Sugarman was the only one I, I went So the to Irish see. man is right out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's his superhero movie, The Irishman. I'm going to go see that tonight. That's very good. Uh, uh, yeah, that was great. That's terrific. Irishman. Yeah, the Irishman. I wonder if he's in spandex. I'm going anywhere. At the Egyptian. That's, uh, that's, uh, 
I mean, we can talk about how the industry is changing, but before we I'm do that- I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night screaming with laughter. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you, because another book you wrote, which I really loved, was um, your autobiography, um, uh, A View from the Bridge. And it's actually, you have to say The View from the Bridge. A View from the Bridge is Arthur, Arthur Miller's Miller, play. Yes. Yeah, The View from the Bridge. I've often been confused <laughs> with Arthur <laughs> Miller. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because, of course, you, you grew up in New York as a son of a pianist and a psychotherapist. It sounds like a Woody Allen movie uh, or at least a Noah Baumbach movie. Um, what, what was that like, you know, just growing up and what sort of inspired your love? You know, everyone has these touchstones growing up. I mean, you talked about the African Queen. I'd love to know sort of what steered you in this direction of this incredible career you've had. Um, you know, sort of what were the touchstones and what was it like growing up in New York and that era. I mean, you talk about being surrounded by inspiration, by art and literature. And... There was no question. Napoleon was once recommended a general. and Somebody said to Napoleon, this guy is a very good general. And Napoleon said, I know he's good, but is he lucky? Hmm. And I've been extremely lucky. Uh, when I grew up, New York was in its post-war heyday. It was a middle-class heyday. And it wasn't until I recently read Joseph Ellis's book, American Dialogues, which I highly recommend, that I understood what an anomaly my childhood environment was. It was, it was an environment that favored middle-class prosperity. And this was primarily, as I learned, the result of leftover FDR New Deal economic policies, which starting with Eisenhower really slowly eroded and eroded until now people are living in cars and on the streets and, and the transformation is complete. But when I was a kid, a man who was a psychoanalyst with a wife who was a concert pianist could live a really comfortable, it was unheard of now to imagine such a thing, in this my dad bought a brownstone house. Okay, it was on the wrong side of the Third Avenue well. No one wanted to live there. Okay. But then they ripped up the Third Avenue well and took away the cobblestones and paved the streets. And suddenly, you know, we were riding this crest of... And you could go... To, there were two opera companies. There was the New York City Opera as well as the Met. There was the... Uh, New York City Ballet, there was George Balanchine, there were these musicals on, on Broadway in place. You could afford all these things. And I was dragged, I might add, kicking and screaming to all of them. The reason being that in those days, little boys who went to the theater or the opera had to wear a necktie, which I hated at first <laughs> sight. I, I couldn't stand it. And eventually, I think I ran away to make movies because that was like running away to join the circus and you didn't have to wear, you know, Robert Aldrich wore a neck yeah, yeah. you know, other people, not so much. Uh, and Houston was like, you know, in safari jackets right. and oh, this is really, um, so it was an, it was a, it was a very lucky childhood. It was a childhood of enormous privilege. I was not a conspicuously and have not remained a conspicuously bright intellectual light, but I was a great, and I am, a great audience. I, I love the movies. I love the theater. I love the opera. I love all that stuff. I just can't get enough. I subscribe to the Los Angeles Philharmonic. I have since 1974. Where I live, unless I take the train, which is an improvement, 
it takes me like two hours to get to a concert that sometimes mm -hmm. doesn't last that long. But I have to have my orchestra fix. That's the world I grew up in. It was a world of books, a world of music, a world of theater, a world of ideas. I was lucky. I know he's a good general, mm -hmm. but is he lucky? Well, it's more than just luck because, you know... This well, it is, wasn't wasted on me, let's say that. Um, the, 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 you know, and there's the story of, you know, in the 80s, every, everybody who was directing was, you know, they were finding a dentist who had a few extra shekels in their pocket and getting them to finance some, you know, low-budget movie. You were very cagey in the way you got your first directing gig. Um, when you optioned the rights to time after time, you attached yourself... As the director, and that movie wasn't getting made without you being behind the camera. And, you know, a lot of people would never, you know, have the audacity or even, you know, the thought of doing that. Or the stupidity. Well, <laughs> was it? <laughs> you tell us. Well, what I brought, um, yeah, I'm the person who made his featured film debut with a studio picture, never having, you know, directed much more than traffic. Um, I had directed a lot of stage plays. And I had directed a lot of plays on the radio. Mm. Um, so I was familiar with that aspect. The camera was the thing I was least familiar with, and of course it shows. Um, but what I did when I wrote The 7% Solution and they wanted to make it into a movie, I said, you can make it into a movie, but I have to write the script. And then the script got nominated for an Oscar. So when I wrote the screenplay for Time After Time, which again was not my idea, it was somebody else's idea, um, I optioned it, I wrote the screenplay, and then I used the same method. I said, if you want the script, then I have to direct it as sort of the leapfrog method. And when I assembled my crew to make the movie, I made the same speech to everyone. I said, I know nothing. You're going to have to teach me. You're going to have to not mind teaching me. And then you're not going to please don't go away angry if I say I still want to do it my way. And anybody who could withstand that catechism, you know, came on board. And it was interesting because I learned in the course of making time after time that there are two ways you can teach, treat your crew. You can compartmentalize them. You can say, what'd you think of this scene? You look at dailies. And the costume person will say, well, the seams were all straight. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't interested in that kind of contribution where you're just limited to that. And it, so it was a much more European idea. And I remember we were filming time after time, and we had a scene where H.G. Uh, Wells finally figures out who the Ripper is and where he's gone. Mm -hmm. And I had a line of dialogue, and we shot the line of dialogue close up on Malcolm McDowell. And then we broke for lunch. And a guy from the Gators came down, Rigger came down. He said, you're the writer of this thing as well as the director, ain't you? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, if you're asking me, he's saying the wrong thing there. And I said, really? What, what should he say? And he reiterated an earlier line from the movie that was already in there. And they're playing chess. And he says, and Well says, one day I'll win. And the Ripper says, one, yeah, when you learn how I think. And he says, that's the line. Mm -hmm. 
And I was like, fuck. And we came came back after lunch and we filmed his line because mine was so terrible after I hated myself. And that's when I learned what a collaborative joy this could be. Mm. I reserve the right to say no. No, I don't want to. You know, you'll get the blame one way or the other anyway. But it was just so cool. And then other people started coming to me with other ideas. I said, don't do it while I'm on the floor. Don't do it while I'm in the midst. Right, right. But, yeah, I mean, whereas Kubrick would just fire the guy. Right. <laughs> well, how much was 7% Solution of film school for you? Did you spend much time on set with Herbert Ross? I mean, certainly, what amazing actors that you got. I mean, there was uh, Nicole Williamson, who was brilliant, but a lunatic. And then, you know, Alan Arkin, and, and then, of course, That's Robert a, Duvall. And, and how about Lawrence Olivier? And, we'll La- just... <laughs> and, and all, well, and Lawrence Olivier, and that guy, too. So, he uh, was my child. I had, when I was growing up, I had a real man crush on Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> this is, this is, um, I just thought he was beyond cool. He was the English Brando, and yeah. I, I saw when I was in high school that he was in a movie that I thought was called Henry V. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, it never mentioned Shakespeare. It was just pictures of guys on horses and swords, and I thought, oh, great, you know, I'm ditching school for this. And I had one of the great, most changed, life-changing experiences of my life. I said, okay, this is the best movie, this is the best actor, and that guy Shakespeare is the best writer. And if you had told me then at age 13, one day this guy is going to be speaking your silly dialogue. (laughs) I mean, you know, of course you wouldn't believe any of that. (laughs) So the idea of casting in the 7% solution, and yes, I was on the set almost the entire time because I was soaking up and and learning, but I helped cast the movie. Mm -hmm. I think I cast Alan Arkin, and I really helped cast Robert Duvall, when I heard that he was interested, I said, the whole idea of the 7% solution, the novel and the movie, was to try to get people to relook at these characters, not as the camp cliches of Basil Rath. I hated almost every Sherlock Holmes movie I've ever seen, mm. with the exception, you know, of Billy Wilder, The Private mm-hmm. Life, mm-hmm. the Peter Cushing, Hound of the Baskervilles, and the one where with Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley where mm-hmm. Holmes is the dummy and Watson is the smart one without right. a clue. Yeah. The rest of them, no, absolutely not until we got to Benedict Cumberbatch and I started saying, okay, you're, you're in the ballpark. I was going to ask you about that. But yeah. otherwise, when you look at Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, you say, well, why does a genius hang out with a buffoon? Mm. What, what is the basis of the friendship? And do you really believe that Nigel Bruce is the voice that you hear when you read? And I began mm. by reading this stuff. So right. when we were casting, I, I said, Watson is not a subnormal guy. Mm-hmm. Holmes is too vain for that. He wants a regular guy, a good guy in a tight corner or right. something. And so it was all revisionist uh, casting. And Herb was great because he included me in every part of making this movie. And when I wrote the screenplay, on the first page, it said, the music is by Bernard Herrmann. (laughs) (laughs) So he went out and hired Bernard Herrmann, who then, alas, died. Died, yeah. And then he turned to me and he said, well, whom should we get? (laughs) And I said, Get John Addison. Right. Uh, and I just saw the movie again for the first time. They played it at the Hammer 
uh, museum about 10 days ago. In the Billy Wilder Theater. In the Theater, Billy yeah. Wilder Theater. And uh, the score is simply wears so well. The movie wears well, mm-hmm. I'm happy to say. Um, but the score is a real thing of beauty, and I'm I'm very happy with my second choice. You know, they wanted Mae West for Norma Desmond. No. Yeah. No. Sometimes your second choice is better. Oh, my God. <laughs> she said she would only do it if she got to write her own dialogue. Oh, and my, God. She, wow. She's going to write oh rewrite God. Billy Wilder. Oh, my God. What a fascinating alternate universe that would be. You bet. Uh, that's terrifying. I, I do want to ask you, because, of course... Um, with uh, the, you tell a story in your biography, if I remember, about Duvall, that when you saw him on stage, uh, on the stage, uh, he was so still that and in dailies, you were horrified. You looked at him and you looked at Duvall in dailies, and he he wasn't doing anything. He he was just sort of standing and whatever. And I said to Herb, "Can you utz him to you know get into it more?" And so Herb said, "Oh, you know, I'll try." And 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 Bob Duval said, well, what do you want me to do? Make a lot of faces? Uh, and then when you hook the whole movie together, he practically walks off with it. Right. And, you know, that's called movie acting. He knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, which I, I, paves the way, I would think, you know, for later in your career when you're directing actors and you've worked with so many great actors. But one of my favorite stories that you do tell um, is uh, the Ricardo Montalbaum story, the first time that you're directing him. And he hadn't been at read-throughs, he hadn't been rehearsals, and he goes completely over the top. He goes completely Nicole Williamson. And uh, and not, not in 7% solution, but that you then had to modulate that. Nicole, it must be said, um, was very well-behaved making the 7% solution. I... Uh, I, I cannot speak disrespectfully of him in any sense as an actor as a as we experienced him he was i don't think it's any secret a desperately unhappy sort of anhedonic mm-hmm. person uh as to what that was all about i've no idea um in the case of montalban uh i like to rehearse I think a lot of good things happen in rehearsal. You don't want to over-rehearse. Movies is a species of sort of fast food something. You want things to be spontaneous, and if you rehearse too much, the camera sees it, and there's no surprises. But what what actors want to do is to experience each other, which in the case of the Star Trek cast, to a large degree, they already had. They also want to experience the director and know what's expected of them and how he operates and basically they have one my friend Ed Zwick said actors always want to know one thing about the directors is is he crazy (laughs) do I have to pull the boat over the mountain (laughs) am I going to live and so forth so I and you can you can also whittle away dialogue in the script when you rehearse you can say you don't need that you can do this with a look and so forth and you you eliminate stuff but Montalban wasn't around for any of that because he was shooting Fantasy Island. And so I had met him. I had had lunch with him, an extremely courtly, uh, at least that was his public persona, gentlemanly and so forth. And uh, we had lunch, and I gave him a copy of Moby Dick. And I said, you know, I don't have time to tell you anything else. You know, read the book. And so he came on stage for his first day of work, not having rehearsed. His list of credits 
was longer than everybody else's, you know, all the other actors put together. Yeah. And like most great actors, he was wasted a lot of the time. Uh, people, you know, you're lucky if, if you know, Atticus Finch, that role comes along and, and so forth where you, or the guy Adolf Caesar from A Soldier Story. That man was in his mm. 70s mm. before he got that role and something that was going to, you know, sink his teeth into and take it and run with it. And Ricardo with, you know, he was the Latin lover a lot of times and, and escorted Lana Turner into the nightclub or whatever, which really was not beginning to use him. And Khan, yes, did give him a chance to, you know, come as close to King Lear as he was going to come. And, and I said to him later, I said, you should be playing Lear. And because he had played George Bernard Shaw stuff, he played Man and Superman or Don Juan in Hell on Broadway. I can't remember, but he'd done it. And he said something about his accent. And I said, but you articulate perfectly. I can understand every, every word. doesn't matter. You know, who knows what King Lear really sounded like anyway. Long story shorter, sorry, I'm, I, I, I digress. He came onto the stage and there was a six-page monologue about who Khan is and why he's so pissed off. And I, this was the second movie I guess I'd directed, and coming from the theater and I thought, God, they always chop off, they always say cut, cut, cut. And they're, they're, I said, wouldn't it be nice if we could do it all in one take and let them really work up a head of steam? So I blocked out, I don't know, 23 camera moves that we were going to dance around him while he... And he came in first day. He was all dressed up in the stuff and brought his real chest with him and the whole everything. <laughs> and uh, he was like yelling this thing through the rafters and everybody was sort of standing around, including the director going, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, now what? And I don't know this man. He doesn't know me. And I'm just a, a kid, one, one, one movie before this. What's he going to say if I try to tell him something? So after he got through and he was letter perfect, he was letter perfect, and he hit every mark I showed him. And so I said, well, let's go into your trailer and we can let them do their lighting and talk a little bit about interpretation. He just kind of nodded. We're sitting there and I'm like sweating under my arms and I said, you know, um, Laurence Olivier once said that an actor should never show an audience his top because once you show them your top, they know you got no place else to go. And he sat back and he looked at me, he said, oh, you're going to direct me. He said, that's good. He says, I need direction. I don't know what I'm doing up there. And then he started telling me stories about directors he'd worked with, Richard Thorpe, Mervyn Leroy, you know, Lana, Ricardo, make it a good scene. Yeah, right. uh, and he said, you know, and I, I said, oh, well, okay. I said, here's another, you know, thought, or, you know, the thing about crazy people is that a crazy person 
really never has to raise his voice that much because you never know what they're going to do next. And I lunged at him and he <laughs> flinched and he said, okay, okay. He was very smart and he, he just knew what where to go with all that. Right. And after that, it was like what I imagine driving a Maserati is. I mean, he, yeah. he just would look at me and he'd go, Nick, if I raised the eyebrow here, was that? And I would say, small, small, you know. And that was, you know, directing him was a lot of fun because he was, it was a process of mutual interaction and discovery. We we had your old nemesis and now friend on the show a couple of weeks ago, Bob Salen, and he said uh, what he remembered about that was after that everybody else was on their best behavior. That that that. Uh, at, uh, after seeing the dailies of Ricardo. After seeing Ricardo and and what, what the performance he was giving. That oh, every- that's very interesting. <laughs> that was very interesting. <laughs> um, I, I have to ask because you know you you famously wrote that script in twelve days uh, or. A version of many scripts uh, that yeah, you... Yeah, let's remember, I didn't know anything about Star Trek. Um, I'd seen, they showed me the movie and they showed me some of the episodes of the show. Mm-hmm. And I was like trying to figure out, um, what is this? And it reminded me of something. And I realized, as I say, I'm slow thinker, slow reader. It reminded me of these books that I read when I was about 12 years old. Like, the same time I was reading Sherlock Holmes, I was reading The Adventures of Captain Horatio mm-hmm. Hornblower. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I thought, oh, this is like Hornblower in outer space. And when I told that to Bill Shatner, he, he got very excited. He said, that's what Gene said. Yeah, uh, right. So I thought, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the ballpark of this anyway. Um, and then they showed me the script the, they were working on draft five, and or they didn't show it to me. I said, "Where is it?" Because I thought we had a, you know, we were doing this. And he said, "And Harv Bennett said, I, oh, I can't show it to you. It's not very good." And he said something else, but it was, uh, it amounted to that. And I said, "Well, what about draft four, or three? And he said, "Kid," because back then everybody called me kid. Um, you don't get it. All these other drafts is just disconnected attempts to get a second Star Trek screenplay out of this. They're not related. Mm. And I said, well, can I read them? Because by this time I was fixated on Hornblower and also another movie that I love called The Enemy Below. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Who directed The Enemy Below? The Enemy Below was, well, it was Kurt Jurgens and Robert Mitchum. Yep. So who directed it? It wasn't Mervyn LeRoy, was it? No. You'll never, you'll never. Who, who, who? You know? It's Bob Wire. It's Dick Powell. Oh, Dick oh, Powell. My God, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Of yeah. course. <laughs> anyway, okay, oh you're all goodness. Um uh, Sorry. My, my, my second favorite, Philip Marlowe. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, they all died from shooting The Conqueror, John Wayne, yeah. Susan Hayward, because they were all in St. George, Utah, and they got right. radiation yeah. poisoning. Right. But Dick Powell directed The Enemy Below, and that was like a big influence on my con movie. Uh, and so they sent me these five scripts. In those days, you don't hit send. You send a van yeah, yeah. with all these yeah. things, and you yeah. sit and, and I'm like reading them and reading them and reading them. And, and then that, I made my suggestion, which is why don't we just pick the things we like out of all these things, and like I'll try to write a new script. And basically that's what wound up 
happening except they said, your idea is great, but it won't work because we need a script in 12 days to give to Industrial Light and Magic to produce the effects in time for the opening. I said, what opening? <laughs> and they, they, they had already booked the movie into theaters before we'd rolled a camera. Again, yeah. uh, and I, you know, I'm young and idiotic, and I said, well, I think I can do this in 12 days, but we've got to you know, get on with it now. Um, so, you know, we picked these things. So technically on one level I wrote the script and on another level the story was written by everybody and sure. his brother because there was the Kirk Kahn story, there was the Kirk and his son story, there was the Genesis Project story, there was the Lieutenant Savick story and I just like little, little, little Rubik's Cube. Yeah. Um, was there ever a point where you wanted to go and strangle Karen Moore for getting you into this? You know, the executive of Paramount who talked you into doing this movie? You know, uh... Right. No, Karen Moore is is a childhood friend. I knew her from Cape Cod when she was like 12 years old. And she's just a wonderful person. She's an exceptional producer as well. Um, she worked for Louis Mal when they were doing Pretty Baby. And she protected Louis so well from Paramount that when it was over, Paramount hired her. And that's how, you know, she wound up talking me into to doing it. No, I... I don't recall ever wanting to kill her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I got to imagine. I mean, here you're coming off time after time, critically acclaimed, beloved, but not particularly financially successful at the time. And now for your second film, you're doing Star Trek, uh, a franchise that you didn't have any particular affinity for. And you're being told most of the time there's no money, you know. Um, so... You know, you know. Now it's easy in hindsight to look back and say, "I made this beloved movie that you know has entertained generations of, of film lovers everywhere." But do you remember at all what it was like? Were there ever those dark moments of the soul? Where like, what have I gotten myself into? I don't think so. I think I was too busy to have dark mm. moments of the soul, uh, and I was in a way having too much fun. One of the nice things about making that movie was that I was to a very large degree, left alone. Um, executives were always so busy doing whatever executives do that I, I was left alone. And I was left alone to reinvent this thing because I didn't, there were so many things I didn't understand, you know, rightly or wrongly, why don't they read books? But otherwise, why, why are they running around in pajamas? I didn't understand any of that stuff. So I, and why do the, why do the ships look like holiday inns and as opposed to like submarines or destroyers or whatever it is I thought they should look like. So I was having a field day. The first day I walked around the bridge set, I said this, 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 and this, and this, and somebody whispered to me later, you just spent $60,000, kiddo. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't, I didn't know, and I wasn't thinking in those terms. Um, I was very aware of the time pressure because we... You know, it was all hurry. And maybe that was not so bad. But we, you, you know, uh, we shot during the day and I edited all night. Um, I think there was like a couple of weeks there where I just didn't see daylight because I was eating. Uh, I was eating lunch in the dark while looking at at dailies. And um, so it was it was all of that was. And it may in retrospect have worked for the the movie. Um, and I was, you know, young enough and had enough stamina to do that. 
um, where I really felt the budget crunch and was very angry was when we were doing Star Trek VI. Mm. And that was a whole different... Sure. They, they cheated when Frank Mancuso and Martin Davis took me to lunch at Paramount, uh, in London. I was living in London, mm. and they came and asked me to do the movie. They took me to lunch, and they gave me a figure, $30 million. And I said, okay. And when I came bag and baggage with my wife and family and rented a house for six months in Beverly Hills, went in for the first meeting, they said, $25 million. Mm. And I said, well, no, just a minute. That's not what we agreed to. And I said, and let me just explain something here. You have $14 million tied up in below the line. You know, just technical stuff, the whatever. Sorry, I lie. $14 million above the line yeah, right. you had with the cast mm-hmm. just starting out of the gate. Mm-hmm. I said, now you have $4 million in, you know, special effects and you have two million dollars in post-production we're now up to what 18 20 million dollars where's the movie right and they said i'm not making this up i differ from george washington you know mark twain said george could not tell a lie i can but i won't (laughs) (laughs) they said would you excuse us for a minute and they, for 20 minutes, went into another room while Leonard and Ralph Winter and Steve Jaffe and I are just sort of sitting there. And then they come back and they go, 27. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, guys. Um, You're in a swap you, meet. <laughs> I'm not negotiating <laughs> right. with you. This is what it'll cost. <laughs> you know? And eventually they canceled the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's when Sherry Lansing and Stanley Jaffe came in, and I had worked on Fatal Attraction for them. And Stanley called me up and he said, kid, (laughs) I hear you have a problem. I said, I need $5 million. He said, you got it. And then we were back on. But it it was really crazy. And at one point in the big peace conference scene at the end, we had these really shitty chairs. And John Goldwyn, who was the executive on the movie, came and visited the set and he looked at those chairs and he said because we were like hiding them because he said <laughs> we screwed up we did you a disservice we did the movie a disservice um because it's, at one point scotty breaks through a door mm-hmm. and i said let's go again and they said can you give us a half hour and I said, what's that about? And he said, well, we have to put the door back together. Oh, they didn't even have an extra door. Oh, oh, my God. Yeah, that made me crazy, that stuff. Should have given you the extra $2 million for the teaser, too. I got it that you had to abandon the whole getting the gang back together, the Dirty Dozen, Magnificent Seven, where everybody right. comes together. Here's a question, I mean, um, which was all Denny Martin Flynn's whole, that was his contribution, sure. script, which I co-wrote with Denny. Uh would the movie have been, you know, better if we had that? Do we need it? This is sometimes things just, you know, Look, work I, out. I'm a sucker for the Men on the Mission movies, and I'm a fan of Star Trek Six. I kind of like the idea of getting the band back together. For it would have last... been nice to do it. It would have been nice to do it. But I always go back to this Henry V movie. Right. <laughs> Which, movie. It was the, f- the fifth <laughs> of a series, movie. really. <laughs> well, you know, the guys said, well, let's make a movie of Henry V. The guys <laughs> seen Henry Ford. Well, how did Henry Ford do? Yeah. Um, but what I 
that movie, which is a seminal influence on, on my thinking, not only about films, but about art. Anyway, that art thrives on restrictions, as we were discussing sure. earlier. And that was made really to promote D-Day, because it's really about D-Day. Sure. The English were going to invade Europe, and Henry V is a rah-rah flag waving once more into the breach, right. Omaha Beach, whatever. Let's die for the cause. Let's yeah. die for the cause. And they had about a buck seventy-five to make this movie. Yeah. And it's fantastic. Yeah. Fair enough. On your imaginary forces work. Think when we speak of horses, blah, blah, and fill in the blanks. Well, I love the fact that you, you and you said this before, that you said if you're going to make Star Trek Six. You called Mary Jo Slater and said, get me Christopher Plummer so I can hear him do Shakespeare all day. Yeah, that was my idea. Because I had this record of him doing the Henry V uh, speeches right. with the William Walton music. And I just, it's on Chandos if you're interested. Uh, <laughs> and I just would like to listen to it. And I thought, it's the only time, putting aside the Star Trek cast, that I ever wrote a screenplay for where, where only one actor Right. Could do it. Right. I mean, what a roll of the dice. And God bless Mary <laughs> Jo for Chris coming Plummer. back and said, got him. I said, got, you got him? <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, now I have to ask you this, if the, because you know the, the conventional story is that Leonard met you on the beach and said, let's do a movie. The, the wall fell. Jeff Kleeman says the story was a little different, you getting uh, doing Star Trek VI. Jeff says... He was begging you to do Star Trek VI for the studio. You had absolutely no interest in doing Star Trek again. You'd done Star Trek, you know, written, helped write Star Trek IV, bailed him out of a jam, Star Trek II, beloved classic. Didn't want to do Star Trek VI. He says, well, come to Cape Cod or where Martha's Vineyard or wherever. We'll, 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 on Paramount's dime, we'll have a nice weekend. You'll go home and I'll tell him I couldn't get you to do the movie. And he says, you're, you're, after a nice day, a nice food, whatever, you're sitting around watching TV. Star Trek Two comes on television, and you start watching it, and you're watching. It and say, oh, I remember this, and oh, that was good. Oh, I like the shot. And suddenly, you start you you start thinking, maybe I do want to do Star Trek Six. Is there any truth to that? Because that's that's the way Jeff remembers it. Well, let me. Or is this Rashomon? <laughs> Well, of course it's Rashomon. <laughs> you know, the first line of my memoir is trial yeah. lawyers will tell you that eyewitnesses are the worst witnesses, mm. the least reliable. Um, Jeff, I think there's no question that he came to visit me uh, on the Cape. I remember this. Um, I don't remember why he was there. And I don't remember watching the movie later and saying you know, this is pretty good or whatever. Although I have, God knows, seen it and said this is pretty good. <laughs> um, he may be right. I should, I should say that my memory, which in some respects is astonishing, I can reel off lines, I bore you to death with the stuff that is stuck in here. But it's not perfect. And I, I learned this. For many years, when people said to me, did you work with Gene Roddenberry? Did you know Gene Roddenberry? And I would say, well, um, I met him. You know, I, I, this is talking about Star Trek II, really. I said, I, I met him. I'm, you know, I, I, you sort of, he was not part of making the film, but you 
kissed the ring or, or, or whatever, but I, I don't remember you know, anything else beside that. Then I was back at the University of Iowa where my papers are kept in their library, and they put out an exhibit for me. And that exhibit included a whole list of uh, memoranda, typewritten pages, a lot of them, between me and Gene Roddenberry mm -hmm. about the script. He hated every script I ever worked on. Sure. Um, and he didn't like the Wrath of Khan script, and I don't know what he thought about the whales. Maybe he liked that one. I don't know. But he didn't like, he didn't like Star Trek VI either until he saw it, which was about three days before he died. Right. And then he decided he did like it. But I had no memory of it. Mm. And I've misremembered things. And Jeff may be entirely correct. The story about Leonard coming to the Cape and walking up and down the beach is entirely true. I'm quite confident about that part of it. What preceded it, with, which is what Jeff is talking about, may also be true. They are not mutually exclusive truths. Hmm. How... <laughs> You know, as opposed to how quickly you've had to write a lot of this, and I know you collaborated with Denny Martin Flynn on, on, on Six because you were finishing Company Business, I think, at the time. Uh, you were finishing another picture. Um, how long does it take you to write your novels? It's a deceptive question. Screenplays and novels are creating generally because it doesn't really take into account, if you're asking what physically how long it takes, I mean, it's a kind of reductive question. You know, it, maybe it takes three months, maybe it takes six months, whatever it is physically. I was thinking about the adventure of the Peculiar Protocols for 10 years, and I was reminded of this when my friend Adam Langer, also a novelist, said, don't you remember we were walking around this square in Bloomington, Indiana, you were telling me about this, and it was 10 years ago. And he was totally right. I didn't remember it. All I knew was I had been, you know, thinking about it. Listen, there are, in my opinion, two basic creative methods. We'll call them the Mozart method and the Beethoven method. Mozart did it all in his head. Mm -hmm. He apparently was great at shooting pool. He was a great pool player. And he would compose whatever it was, piano, concerto, violin, symphony, opera, while shooting pool, or he said writing music for him was like pissing. He said it was just like a natural thing. It just, blah. and when you look at Mozart manuscripts, there are very few corrections. It just, he sort of copied it out. On the other hand, Beethoven, it's all written down. The entire process is externalized, and you can see it. You can look at the, at the notebooks and they look like demented chickens crossing the staff <laughs> paper. It looks insane. And so most of my writing, I now walk around with a little book like this and, and write. And sometimes it says, pick up laundry, but other times it's a line of dialogue or something. So I don't totally lose what I've got. But it's the thinking part, for me, is the longest part. I... If you just say sit down and start typing, I don't know what to do. I have to have sort of made it up a lot in my head. I'm more in the Mozart camp, not the supreme genius of all time camp, but <laughs> maybe the bad pool player version. Right, the thinking it out first. 
So here's a question for you. Um, talking about you know, getting into Star Trek II and and really having no experience with Star Trek, having to kind of explain it to yourself through the process of kind of writing it and making it. And when you got to the end of that process, uh, did you feel a any particular sense of authorship? I mean, as uh, just over Star Trek as a whole, because you'd essentially reinvented it, or did you feel more the way you described yourself in writing the 7% solution um, or writing Holmes as, as a forger? as somebody who is kind of playing in, uh, in, in somebody else's playground. This is where I'm going to have to think slowly. Um, I think, I can't say all artists, but in terms of evaluating my own relationship to my work, it's a little bit like you know Moses being not allowed to cross the Jordan and take a look back and say, oh, oh this is where I was. You know, instead, you get the gold watch, and somebody says, Joshua's going to take it from here. Um, I have come to... Mm, let me back up. It's a good question. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle was extremely obtuse on the subject of Sherlock Holmes. He lavished a lot of his time and attention on his science fiction and on his historical novels. That's what he really cared about. Holmes, he was like dashing this stuff off one a week. Leonard Bernstein, you know, if you talk to him about Candide or West Side Story, sure, sure, sure. But what about my symphonies? <laughs> Arthur Sullivan, you know, linked forever with Gilbert. But what about his opera, Ivanhoe, <laughs> uh, which nobody remembers? We're not always remembered or remarked upon for the things we'd like to be remarked upon. Um, and I've sort of made my peace with this. I don't know that I am organically a Star Trek person, but if you're asking me, am I reconciled to the fact that I've made or contributed to three of the best Star Trek feature films, you bet, I love it. I am extremely proud, whether I'm the author of it or the contributor to it, you know, is a, I don't want to be accused of being anti-semantic, oh. uh, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> if this was AM radio, you could give us a ta -ta and a little cymbal crash there. Thank you. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm real happy that I directed The Wrath of Khan. I'm real happy that I did the 7% solution. I'm some kind of author. I will give you how I see myself because I've now locked on to your question and remembered <laughs> this little story. Many years ago, I was invited to a party of important French film people at some fancy apartment on Fifth Avenue in New York. I do not remember why I was invited to this party. <laughs> I was, you know, a young guy. And everybody, all the directors, the, the Michel Piccoli and Jean Moreau, and there were directors there too, including my, my favorite of the French directors. We'll get to who this was in a minute. And I was just like wandering around a little bit lost with my mouth hanging open at these people. And there was a foyer that had been emptied out and a table with all these dessert cakes had been put onto the foyer. And 
the hostess walked by this director that I admire, that I was kind of watching across the room like a hawk. And there was just the two of us in this foyer. And she said, oh, ex darling, would you be so kind as to cut the cakes or cut the dessert, whatever. And then she breezed out. And I'm staring, watching at this guy. And he starts cutting a cake. And I'm dying because I don't know about you. But when somebody asks me to cut the cake, I start in the middle and start going around making pie slices. And this guy is making parallelograms <laughs> and triangles and rhombuses. <laughs> and we haven't been introduced. And I say, with no introduction, I snivel up to him and go, so how come you're cutting the cake like that? <laughs> And he doesn't look up because he doesn't think he's done anything special. And he says, well, this way everyone can have the size and the shape that they want. <laughs> and I leave the party. I go out of there and I start walking up Fifth Avenue and I'm not on the sidewalk. I'm on the pavement because I hope I'm going to be hit by a car <laughs> and be put out of my misery because I realize that if I live a thousand years, I will never cut the cake like this. I was in the presence of a truly original idea and a truly original artist. No wonder this guy could make a comedy about incest. It was, it was Louis Malle. And I think, and, I, and as I'm walking uptown thinking, just kill me, just kill me. Um, and then after about 20 blocks, and this is like three in the morning, mind you, so the chances of my being hit by anything were probably remote. Uh, <laughs> I began to think about this, and I thought, okay, 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 okay. You will never be the artist that Louis Mal is. You will never cut the cake like that. You will never make Murmur of the Heart, a comedy about incest. Um, but it is true that you understood what you saw. You understood that you were in the presence of, a, of an original act. You will preserve it. You will relay it to others as I am now this moment relaying it to you. And that's the kind of artist you are. It doesn't make, again, it's just an opinion. It's not, necess it's not definitive. The word definitive does not belong in any discussion of art or biography. It's just an opinion. My opinion stems from that encounter with Louis Mal and the fucking cake. <laughs> That's uh, a great title, by the way. Louis Mal and the, <laughs> the fucking, fucking cake. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a New Yorker short story. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I got to ask you one last question, because, of course, you uh, have had the good fortune to be a consulting producer on, ah, on yes. shows. The best gig in Hollywood, if you can get it. You show up one or two days a week. You get paid well. You, you need get to go home to, at night. You get to I'd say, like to do that. Well, I was coming, <laughs> that's where I was coming to. And you get to say, hey, I have an idea. What if we did this? And they go, no. And you're like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I got it. You know, you, you had your uh, the gig on uh, Discovery, uh, you know, and having never, you know, staffed on a TV show, it's very different than being an auteur. Well, I co-created the Medici, so I oh, have staffed no, the this TV was, show. But this was before the Medicis. I think Wasn't it? I think Medici was, was after first, Medici, yeah. so I, I then... Uh, but was, did you approach that like a feature, or did you have a writer's room, and was it a traditional... When we you were, were in Medici's? a writer's room we on were, Discovery, okay. for sure, and yeah, I was just no. another member of it. 
Now I have to ask you when that when that ended when you went off to develop. You know, Eddie Egan talks about um, after Star Trek II, Paramount had briefly dabbled with developing Prison Planet, which was going to be a SETI Alpha Five con thing. Oh, I um, never heard that. Yeah, and and, uh, and uh, it was it was it was news to us too. But uh, Eddie Egan, uh, who was the publicist of Star Trek II, sure. was is adamant that that was in development. So. Uh, you know what? Uh, you know what? What is the status, or what was your interest in sort of revisiting this this world, or uh, you know, as we as, as we call it in the trade, a paycheck gig? <laughs> right. What was uh, what? What? Uh, Alex Kurtzman, who's I think a terrific uh, guy and very very smart, approached me with this idea, which I thought was brilliant. I love the idea. I still love it. I don't know what happened to it. I mean, I wrote the three episodes. It'd be interesting, uh, you know, casting Khan would be quite the uh, the challenge. The casting call for casting Khan. <laughs> the casting call for casting Khan. Well, look, uh, Nick's uh, new book, uh, the latest Sherlock Holmes adventure, um, The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols, is out uh, now in hardcover. I have to cover. say it slowly so people, The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols. Uh, uh, and Darren, fucking if you would, cake. Edited by Nicholas Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it's, uh, it's the latest of uh, many great uh, Sherlock Holmes novels edited by uh, Nicholas Meyer. Um, also, we mentioned a few movies on this show that you may not be as well versed in. Uh, time After Time, which is um, Warner Archives put out on Blu-ray earlier this year, or was it last year? Beautiful uh, edition with commentary. By Who, me and Malcolm. Li- lifts, uh, lifts the curtain up. And it was a time travel week pick on 430 Movie. It was a, a time. It was a, it was what a, was it? We have another podcast called The 430 Movie where we curate fantasy theme weeks. of, And that was timed. It was an homage to the 430 Movie in New York where they would do theme weeks. And so that week was time travel week. Mm-hmm. And 430 Movie was, I think it was your pick, if yeah, I it recall. Was. Time after time. For time after time. Time after time was your yeah. pick. Um, That's how I discovered HBO. It was on. I just watched it over and over again. See, when I, was I like, saw it in a theater. So yeah, the, uh, I was we the Graham and the Graham Theater in Brooklyn, no longer there. Like most theaters Wait, in Brooklyn. Wait, there was a we're, we're we're we went we jump. Oh, other movies that you haven't mentioned. My two Philip Roth adaptations, um, the um, the Human Stain, yep. B plus. And um, the dying animal, which we call, which I called elegy, right? Because I didn't think dying animal was going to pass Look the good Saturday on night test. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, hon, let's <laughs> go see dying animal. Well, you know, some towns. Well, <laughs> and <laughs> even though Nick didn't direct it, Seven Percent Solution, um, it's a must if you haven't uh, if you haven't seen it. If you, like, if, you if you like Sherlock Holmes and you like smart, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, if you're a Gene Hackman fan. <laughs> You had to do it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Everybody should have one total stinker. You know, it's like my dad used to say every driver should have a non-lethal car accident just to show you (laughs) what the the possibilities Possibilities. are. So I screwed up. No, it's, it's, uh, I mean, you've had, you know, a very eclectic and, and, uh, you know, career, which is, you know, so, so many people, we've talked about this before, I mean, you know, you get pigeonholed. I mean, you know, John Ford. Everybody knows him for his westerns and and his 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 uh, obviously war movies. But you have you've done it all. I mean, you've done sci-fi. You, you know, you've done detective. You've done you know drama as comedy. Um, uh, you know, adaptation. I mean, you've just you're a chameleon, which is sometimes I'm does, not that funny. 
<laughs> You're not that funny, but uh, what? Star- I think Star Trek Four is pretty. Yeah, it's very great. funny because I got to write a comedy. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. I always, I, I drive around the, you know, town th- thinking funny things and thinking, oh, there's no one here <laughs> to hear how funny I am. It's the sequel to Time After Time. We never knew we were going to get. Right. Um, and it will Star be again. Trek. That's the beauty of it. Um, but. Uh, no, so look, we appreciate you coming down, and you know it's the holiday season. It's a little heavy to fit in a stocking, but uh, we highly recommend you pick up the book. It's available in hardcover. Um, the, the audio book, as we've learned, is is worth listening to, and of course, digital. But that's probably the least uh, the, the the least recommended way to watch it. But also, if that's the only way you don't like having books. A lot of people don't have books. A lot of these millennials, mm-hmm. they don't like to have books. They don't like to have, possess objects. Well, you can sit in traffic and listen to David Robb read it, and that's he true. does a he does a beautiful job. So um, you heard the hardcover is the priority, and then the, uh, the the then if not, get the audio book, and then down the list is the digital version if you have to. And if you really want to get into it, buy them all. Yeah. I know Why people not? who have said they've switched back and forth <laughs> between listening to David and reading it. I thought that's fascinating. That sounds a little schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh well, look, uh again, thank you for coming coming down. We, I it seems like the book's doing really well. Hopefully it will continue to do really well. And uh Yes, yeah, I hope so. My fingers and toes are crossed. And uh you know, uh have you optioned it yet as a film or is you you attached to direct? That's an interesting remark. I think if I'd initially seen it as a film, I would have written it as a, as a script. Remember, my first loyalty to Sherlock Holmes was always on the paper. It was, it was Doyle's version. If somebody options it, I will certainly write the screenplay. I don't know if I direct it or not. But uh, I've got a lot of ideas of how to do it. Well, we could, you know, Nick is always uh, so fascinating to talk to. We could talk to him for another two hours, but uh, we're not going to. Um, <laughs> At least not <laughs> because today. he needs to leave. But Bill will And uh, we want to thank you for uh, thank our guests, Ashley Miller, Nicholas Meyer, for joining us for Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 4:30 Movie every Friday and Best Movies Never Made every other Monday. You can also watch the video podcast on your favorite Electric Surge. Uh, channel Electric Now. It streams on Stir, Zumo, Distro TV, and is coming soon to the Electric Now app. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And I want to point out uh, we have a series of, of, of wonderful, wonderful reviews, except for that last guy. <laughs> Who, who wrote to us and said, I used to love the podcast, but I'm tired of you proving to us that you're the smartest people in the room. That's why we brought on Nicholas, so we could have somebody who's smarter than us to put that guy to rest. So that was, uh, and uh, hopefully- Great at first. Not, we, we, because, you know, I mean, it was like five stars, five stars, five stars, and then this, this clown. <laughs> So, anyway, that the hell with you. Review but we don't, read, reviewer, we don't read our reviews. So, uh, finally, <laughs> never read reviews. Finally, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter. Bill, great episode, huh? Really Fascinating. Good. Oh, yeah. And everyone here at Electric, you can pick up the book. It's really good. You should check it out, okay? Or the audio book, because you could comment on the sound. And, of course, our producer, Natalie Miscali. Natalie, thank you. Uh, and, of course, Dean Devlin, without whom this show wouldn't be possible. Uh, until next time. What do we say? Keep, Keep on, on trekking and gloriously, of course. And then I go, shh. There you go. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll see you again soon.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.